one of my first real life groans while watching a movie. I was a young lad. I was watching some like thriller about a mother on the run or something from something. I don't remember what it was. But what I do remember was at the end when when like her pursuer was dead or whatever, she was standing in front of a, a Safeway, the grocery store. Yeah. And the camera panned so that the, the way got blocked by something so that it just said safe behind her head. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was just like, Gah. I'm 12 and this is too childish for me. <laughs> is that the first movie you can remember watching and thinking, oh, this is bad? Hmm, no, because I was just an opinionated little jerk. <laughs> ah. Wahoo! This is episode 224 of Insert Credit. It's a show where a panel of experts discusses a variety of video game topics and typically a buzzer is somehow involved. I'm Alex Jaffe, and without specifying what it is, I would estimate that I am about 44% finished with the video game-related project I've been working on most recently. <laughs> oh, wow. What am I working on? Okay. Um, I'm Frank Spaldi, and I would estimate that I am, uh, let's go for a clean 33.33 indefinitely exactly one uh, percentage through the current project I'm working on. That's a comfortable place to be, 33.33. Third of the way. Not anybody's favorite uh, naked gun movie, by the no. way, is the 33 and a third. Not not no. the best one. Um, the, the joke was funny for a while. Um, anyway, hello, I'm Tim Rogers. I am exactly 16.67% of the way finished with my current project, which uh, I think everyone is probably quite familiar with. I'm not talking about the current episode. I'm talking about every episode that will ever be made. All right. I'm Brandon Sheffield, and I'm... I mean, we got a, a couple of projects going, so it's hard to choose one. We're, I'd say we're about... Um... You got to lump them all together. Okay. So if I average them, <laughs> yeah, then we're probably at about 30%. But uh, we, we got one that's around 85, 90. Uh, we got nice. another one that's like 60 to 70. And then we got a bunch of other ones that are like sub 5% of the way along. So that's kind of somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. I'm going to get right to it. I had a theme episode planned, but I threw it away because we need to talk about what the hell is wrong with Nintendo. Uh, what do you mean, Jaffe? What happened? Oh, um, well... I don't know if you're aware, but uh, recently Nintendo announced their intention to delist all of their uh, classic library games from the Wii U and the 3DS libraries. Oh, that And thing. strangely, they put out a statement that they have no intention to reissue these games. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> Wait, did they actually do that? I'm not following any of this trash. Well, they, they put out a statement that is not deleted, the entirety of it, but they did delete a part of it um, very quickly, like within like 20 minutes of posting it, um, that was essentially in the Q&A, someone asking like, isn't it kind of your responsibility to do this? And shouldn't you, <laughs> shouldn't you offer another way? And they just replied with like, we currently have no plans to offer classic content in other ways. Let me let me sum up my take on this because this is this seems like a frank question. <sighs> so yes, Nintendo's taking down the the, the servers uh, and not allowing purchases, which I think is key of of Wii U and 3DS games uh, very soon, and then uh, sometime after that, presumably, uh, even if you've purchased that the games, you won't be allowed to uh, download them anymore. And first thing I will say is uh, that's business reality, everyone. That's just yeah. how it goes. Like that's 
that is the fate of all digital services for uh, obsolete hardware. Mm-hmm. There's no getting around that, I don't think. Yep. So totally understand uh, that, that, that decision, but we put out a statement at the Video Game History Foundation today, and essentially it's like, okay, we get that, but Nintendo's a member of the ESA the Entertainment Software Association. Mm -hmm. And the ESA is a lobbying group that is actively preventing uh, the preservation of video games by libraries and museums and institutions. They are actively fighting the notion of access to out-of-print digital games. So not only is Nintendo giving people no way to purchase these games, they are also preventing literally any legal way of uh getting these games in the future and my take that i wouldn't put in a story but i'll like a journalist but i'll I'll, I'll say here is that i think reading between the lines here between that and the statement it's i I think nintendo is just basically saying yeah these are these are the pirates games now so good luck so what you're saying is minister frank cefaldi of the video game history church here (laughs) you are absolved of piracy uh, starting on X day, uh, you should issue a statement like that uh, for any any digital titles released for the Nintendo Wii U or 3DS. It is something that I, t- I tweeted something to that to that effect. Uh, yes, the, the video game history church absolves you. <laughs> I personally absolve <laughs> video game you, history I, pope. Not every opinion of mine represents the company or whatever. And uh, Kelsey keeps yelling at me not to tweet it, stuff like that, and I should probably listen to her. But. You're the Pope, though. The Pope can say whatever he wants, and then everybody else at the church is like, that Pope, that's just him. Yeah. That's just him, I guess. Uh, well, but they, but it's also officially... <laughs> Like a, a statement from Catholicism. Uh, I suppose. I suppose yeah. so. Nobody really. Uh, in in I, in in my house, we didn't always respect the Pope growing up. Okay. All right. That's all right. that's not true. I don't know what that. I, I never mind. I don't want to. <laughs> what what non video game music would we play for the video game Pope? Right. <laughs> oh, it's. Uh, uh, I think there's a couple of good ones you could play. Yeah, I guess there's a couple good songs out there. Something with a trumpet. <laughs> let's let's leave it at that. Something with a trumpet. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's that's me. Where, where where are you boys at with this? Well, um, I, the way I think about Nintendo is, uh, love their games. Uh, good people. Reggie, wonderful guy, CEO. Satoru Iwata, love that guy. If uh, this is what they decided, I'm 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 for it. I think it's I think it's probably <laughs> for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Reggie, beautiful face. Well, I'm going to go back then to spitting <laughs> on the ESA here because uh, keep, keep keep going for it. <laughs> I mean, Video game history, Pope. So, you know, every three years there is a hearing to essentially uh, edit the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to to add amendments to it. Or right, right, right. Devil and, may cry a lot, as I call mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and one of the most recent sort of requests from from uh, institutions that were involved in this was the ability uh, to offer uh, digital access to completely out-of-print games. The only opposition to this was the ESA. And uh, the ESA's stance is, well, it is theoretically possible that one of our clients might reissue a game. Therefore, the other tens of thousands cannot be uh, available academically Yeesh. yeah that is where the law stands currently uh although there is uh, a really fun uh, uh little exemption here which is uh libraries can provide access digitally to out-of-print software 
as long as it's not a game. So the ESA's huh. argument is that researchers accessing software, they might do so in order to have fun. And they that, that's literally what they said. Um, and so the implication is that one cannot have fun with something that is accessed through a library system. And, and that is what stood. So that's where we are. Libraries cannot be wow. used for fun. You can't have fun for free. No. This is America. Only cold so, academic study of of software that is not a game. Um, and also, what is a game? What is the legal definition of a game? We don't have one. There isn't one. There's, there's one so, way to get around that loophole, I know it though. when I see it. One way to get around that loophole, yeah. and I've been doing it since I was about nine years old, and it is <laughs> to just be learning everywhere you go. There's always, as long yeah. as you're learning all the time. You're not having fun. Yeah. They can't get you. Right. Yeah. Nothing is fun. Everything is a life experience for me. It's uh, it's a real shame sometimes. So where I stand on this is, this is, of course, what I expect from Nintendo or any big company. In fact, it's much more surprising when a company like Sega says, like, go ahead and mod our Genesis games. We don't, we don't care if you do that. You can even sell them. You just got to give us a little cut. Like, that's pretty wild that they are doing that and it's surprising and cool i'm glad they are um it might be different if they had a current platform though i bet um for me like as soon as playstation mobile disappeared and like the Vita was going away i was like go ahead and pirate odir and gunhouse on there if you want to like you have my blessing because you can't get it otherwise so go for it it's gonna be tough with the 3ds and the Wii U because so much of that experience is tied to the hardware. It's really unfortunate that like being tied to the hardware is what makes that software interesting, but it's also what kind of dooms it to future obscurity in a certain way. It's too bad. Like you're always going to be able to play a Super Nintendo game on anything because it's just graphics on a screen. Yeah. But 3DS has a touchscreen. It's got the 3D stuff. Mm -hmm. The Wii U has the separate controller with different information on it sometimes like the dual screen aspect itself you can emulate it okay like you just have two screens stacked on top of each other but it's it does terrible it's a terrible experience yeah. emulating the 3ds yeah was this not just the end game of this whole thing like uh, the most cynical people of all amongst all of us were saying back when nintendo initially announced the nintendo ds the first ds it was nintendo is uh they're they're trying to uh, uh, thwart the pirates, right? They don't want people to just be able to uh, bootleg their games. Right. Uh, you have to at least, at the very least, own the Nintendo DS hardware in order to play DS games in a way that makes sense. Same goes for the Wii U. Same goes for the the 3DS. They they're they're two consoles that are that more or less require you to be playing the game on those consoles, as we're saying. And it's uh, yeah. it's it's interesting that they choose to uh, cut both of them off at basically the exact same time, right? It's yeah. been interesting to see that sort of ethos over time because the, the arcade industry had to adapt to and adopt that methodology a little sooner because people weren't going into arcades as much because the arcades used to have the edge of graphics and like they, they could have new boards which would get you better graphics faster mm-hmm. and that's no longer the case um the and we've had we've hit basically a graphics plateau about 15 years ago in as far as stuff that's good enough maybe you have brandon <laughs> <laughs> wow. so so to keep people going to the arcade you get like the 
the rhythm games that have unique controls. You get the Square Enix shooting game with the two guns that lock together and all that kind of stuff so that you can only play it in that environment. And and so that's the reason that you would come in there. So it, it's been interesting to watch the vector of change for certain console makers and arcade platforms trying to go that way where uh, Microsoft and Sony are basically like, yeah, we just made two big hot PCs that are affordable. And uh, they're basically, they're like not that different when you come down to it. They certainly don't have any extra cut touch screens or weird nonsense going on. No, no VR holograms like I thought they were going to do. They do have those, uh, those adaptive triggers on the PlayStation controller, though. Yeah, they do. And they have the HD rumble. Anyway, no one's going to save this stuff but all of us. That's what it comes yeah. down to. There's mm-hmm. no the, 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 there, there is no path within uh, the capitalism system to uh, preserving games uh, in ways that uh, will make the legal fetishists among you uh, pleased to play these games. So uh, read between the lines. Yeah. Avast me hearties. Uh, I know this is a little late for this, but uh, I would like to take umbrage with Brandon's comment that the Super Famicom is just graphics on the screen. Maybe to you, Brandon. (laughs) To me, the Super (laughs) Famicom is beautiful memories. (laughs) Memories that are that are replicated seamlessly on my mister. I was I was yeah. trying to avoid just saying Genesis for the fifth time, which is why I switched to Super oh, Nintendo. Genesis rules. It does. What games set in the present day at their release have best retroactively become period pieces? Every Yakuza game, the end. <laughs> like I, I'm I'm playing Yakuza Five right now, um, which is the longest and boringest one. That's the one people don't like. Yeah. Um. So far, I'm in the in Hokkaido. Or I think I'm in Hokkaido, I forget, in the Snow Festival, and there's like Snow Festival 2012 on there, and everybody's got still got vestiges of flip phones going on, and it, it's just, you, you see brands that were there at that time, and uh, yeah, it certainly rockets you back to a specific uh, time of contemporariness, which I love, um, because all those Yakuza games came out like new with new products and new sounds and whatever and then you you go and play the remaster 10 years later and it's like yeah i remember 2012 heck of a year mm-hmm. um so yeah i think the yakuza games are really good at that there's probably some others but that one does a great job i mean it's it's hard to just come up with games that are contemporary ever <laughs> there's just not that yeah. many like real world analog games i mean the first one that my brain goes to and i think this is going to be a lot of people is earthbound and um I do think it is sort of capturing a time where uh, you used pay phones and had to get cash out of an ATM in order to make purchases. I mean, that that's a little bit quaint now. Yeah, that's fun. I like it. Uh, back in the 1800s when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out, that was pretty. Oh, yeah. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 uh, takes place in the 1900s. Oh, heck. Sorry. Owned. So, uh, uh, 1903, I believe. It embarrassing. Is, it is 1903. Yeah, that's, that is true. Three years before the earthquake. The big one, TBO. Yeah, that's all they talk about in this game. It's like, I'm really scared for that earthquake. That's coming. That earthquake's yeah. coming in three years. Yeah. I hope my house doesn't go on fire. I hear the winds rumbling across the prairie about an earthquake. <laughs> What's coming yeah. a couple years from now? We don't need any earthquake proof, and this town's gonna last forever. Horses are spooked again. Seems like uh, <laughs> a couple few years gonna be an earthquake. Right, what, what other games take place in their time? Uh, Batman, the video game for the NES. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, because Batman, uh, the movie took place in the the same, wasn't it? 
Oh, they, was it like the 1989 Gotham Centennial Parade or something? Could Jaffe, you know. Yeah. It's pretty vague on purpose. But okay. that but that that movie takes place in what if the 40s were happening right now? Right. Right. I I think though we there's a lot that we can do with for example all the like cheaply licensed games on the Genesis Super Nintendo and TurboGrafx like like Yo Bro on the on the TurboGrafx which has like those 90s Memphis style graphics on there with the title screens and stuff. I think that a lot of those represent the commercials of their era incredibly well. Like, yo, kids, come on down to the fun zone. And then like a guy skateboards by with sunglasses and then puts him down and winks at you and is like, don't tell mom. I I think uh, there's a bunch of those kinds of things. I don't know if it's worth discussing in less broad strokes than that. But um, yeah, they do a pretty good job. All the ones I come up with are like Beavis and Butthead, Lester the Unlikely, Green Dog, the Beached Surfer Dude. Yeah. California games. There you go. That's the best game set in its time period that uh, sure. that is a, is a good period piece because it's- Oh, uh, actually, what about sports games? It's weird to ignore those entirely because- it, Yeah. You know, you get, but there's you not get much your, in there uh, except maybe like rules that changed later or something, you know? But, no, no. It's, well, it's like- Athletes. It's like you get your NBA Jam and all those yeah. players from the 90s that you know oh, are in fair. there. Okay, NBA, okay. NBA Jam, boom, shakalaka. He's on fire. Yeah. Uh, a good thing with the Beavis and Butthead game, I think it's the Super Nintendo one, is that uh, one of the mechanics is searching pay phones for change. Yes. So oh, yeah. Very of its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Might be the Genesis one. I don't remember. The Game Gear one's a bizarre game. If you haven't played the Game Gear Beavis and Butthead, give it a spin. It's a, it's a, it's a really strange one. I haven't. I will spin it. I'll see if it stays up for very long when I spin it. Spin it, my friend. Any games from the 80s about the Cold War? Uh, there was that one called Cold War, but that was from the yeah. 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Golgo 13 top secret episode. Yeah. Have you, have you seen the cover for that game, Cold War, on the um, Sega CD? Uh, no, let's look it up. It's so good. Oh, wow. Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Bill Clinton and Saddam Hussein shaking hands over like a some planes flying. And, and the, Clinton is like kind of glad handing, looking into the camera like, uh, man, and, and their arms are too long. It's uh, I love oh, it. And the so phoenix good. is manifesting in the background. <laughs> That's right. Oh, sorry. It's called the Third World War. Sorry, my mistake. It's not Cold War. Third World War. Hmm. Uh, next question. <laughs> okay. From software developer Hidetaka Miyazaki often speaks on his love for poison swamps. He loves the swamp. What's your favorite kind of environment in video games? Mall. I like the mall. There should be more mall games. Malls actually are sure. pretty fun. It's all about the airport. Oh, yeah. Set a video game level in an airport and... Uh, the- I'm I'm pretty pumped and ready to go. I like in Ninja Five O, you fight through the airport and then you're in the plane. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe that's a reference to Elevator Action Returns, where you fight through the airport and then you're in a plane. Probably it is, and also has similar similarly sticky maneuverability to it. Wait, is there is there an elevator in the plane? What do you mean? Oh, in Elevator Action Returns, yeah. there's there's little lifts. In Elevator Action Returns, the first level of the game is quite reminiscent of elevator action you're going up and sure. down in elevators uh whereas uh the rest of the game it gets a little it gets a little different okay yeah okay there's still there's still elevating platforms but they're yeah. not like i'm picturing kind of rolling thunder maybe with the rest of it it's it's rolling thundery yeah okay. i think uh, rolling thunder just basically anything that would be a rolling thunder level is uh is a good level for me a downtown like southern california street 
would be a cool place for a video game level. Well, it sounds it sounds like based on this and the prior question, like we we like real world analog places in video games. I like some yeah. fantasy ones too, though. I like I like myself a crystalline forest where there's like f- glowing gems. Give me some glowing gems. I like a I like a good cave behind a waterfall that has some mystery to it. I like that. Sort yeah, there's of like thing. glowing water in a cave. It's always mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. I like stuff with uh, with weird lighting. So like you're in a forest and and there's all like aggressively over the top dappling of leaves and shadows and stuff. Uh, uh, I feel like that's a chill zone. I like a river auto scroller scene where where there's just like a nice sunset in in the back and there's palm trees and stuff. Mm-hmm. I like a castle. I like a church. Mm, I'm okay with those. Those are those are just kind of like st- a lot of stones. Yeah. Stones are good though, dude. Well, like Resident Evil 4 is just like stones the game. They, those two yeah, things work really true. well in there. It doesn't inspire me, though. Bricks. Bricks look good, man. I don't care. Bricks look real good when they're in a cool video game with bricks. Yeah. Oh, I like a, I like a 2000s lab um, where there's just like sterile white walls and things in beakers and weird syringes. And there's, a, there's like a room and you can see into it from the window. And then you're like, oh, man, there's going to be something when I go in there, I bet. I like those, even though they're kind of boring. I, st- I still, I, I want to look at the the weird decomposing guy on the gurney and and have my character be like, looks like he had a bad day. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like games that let you free look, even if it's in like camera mode, in side places that have bookshelves. Oh yeah, yeah. And because I will read every spine, and uh, not a lot of attention is paid. To uh, book spines and video games, I'll tell Which you. Which makes that. it fun, yeah. Because Some, sometimes there's just there's just like flablablub. It's just typed nonsense. Wow, they have the entire Lorem Ipsum collection. <laughs> uh, I was trying to remember. I think it was yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay in Spider Man for uh, PlayStation. There's an anthropology book called Ice the Goose. Ice <laughs> the Goose, and there's like at least eight different editions of it uh, in one office. It's not a straightforward pl- process. It's a wait. Which which Spider-Man game for which PlayStation? Uh, PlayStation Five or Four? Sorry, the, this. You talking about the Miles Morales? No, no. Not Frank. Did you just brag about owning a PlayStation Five? Uh, no, because I don't. He said don't four. <laughs> oh well, he said four instead of five, or he said five first. I did. And I believe oh. that there is a five version it's of a, this the game. remaster. Yeah, it's it, there it got to be. There's a remaster. It's. I just want to make sure if one were to go purchase it, they were getting the the best one. You got to make sure you get Ice the Goose. I can't guarantee Ice the Goose is like they might have replaced. I doubt they replaced Ice the Goose. It's probably still in there. Why would they? Kind of a psycho would replace Ice the Goose. It's a literary triumph. Yeah. Have you ever read it? A literary triumph of, of anthropology books. Wait, wait, Frank. Are you operating under the assumption that this book is not real? Because uh, it I am, is, in fact, yeah. I assume it's some kind of deep cut Marvel reference. Oh, probably, yeah. There's not enough of those in the world. Man, that would disappoint me. Actually, I would be much so disappointed if someone came uh, in the forums later, which they may, and was like, "Actually, Ice the Goose <laughs> is a reference to this specific frame of this comic yeah, from uh, Dan Slott's Spider-Man run." Oh man, yeah, you clearly haven't iced a goose before. Is what is the sort of thing someone would probably tell you, right? Actually, reading the dance slot run right now. So, all right, I like a tower. I love a spire. Spires are okay. I like to be able to jump on a big bell. Clock towers are good. Bell's great. Yeah, clock Clock towers. towers I mean, I could sit here and list level types all day. Though it all comes down to airport, (laughs) Jerry. 
Airport's good. I love the airport in Bullet Witch. Airport in Bullet Witch is a good one. Bullet Witch also has a good sewer. Does. It sure does. My favorite sewer levels in Bullet Witch. Bullet Witch has a fantastic, I've talked about this before, American suburb from the lens of a person from Japan, uh-huh. which it, the streets are like five times as wide, but the houses are like, these are actually kind of right, mostly. This discussion may continue on another podcast. Yes. Here's my next question. Netflix recently announced that they're in the early stages of developing... A Bioshock movie. Yeah. No talent, writers, or directors are attached, which is always a good sign. Uh, no, no talent will be attached, let me tell you. Uh, that's my theory. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Other than canceled, what do you predict Netflix's Bioshock movie will be like? Well, it's a movie, not a TV series. So uh, the cool thing about this is that, uh, I mean, I'm trying to be as nice as I can. It's... Uh, <laughs> the, the the cool thing is that there's just not going to be uh, the same level of criticism that there was about like the Cowboy Bebop show. Mm. So it's possible we'll get something like just wildly, weirdly, uh, interestingly bad, or maybe something good. I don't know. Well, I think I think they're going to have to. There's a magic trick to the game, right? Like the, there's there's the magic yeah. trick that everyone talks about, and I think they're going to have to adapt that to the screen. And I think the way they're going to have to do that is. Uh, Guy's going to look at the camera right when the movie starts and goes, would you kindly watch this movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so God. there's, there's, I mean, it's, it's been a long time now. The big twist of Bioshock is that you are being mind manipulated by someone to do all of these murders and such. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Wow. <laughs> well, some people haven't played it. The big twist is that is that your video game character that you're controlling is being controlled by a guy. In other words, the guy is basically you, but he's also a character in the game. So you, uh, who are you controlling? The the first person protagonist, or are you controlling the guy who is using the brain control magic? elsewhere in the game did you know about this brandon did i just spoil it for you hopefully i didn't and i mean hopefully i did i hope hope you didn't know about this because it's good uh though it's a i mean how are they gonna do that in a in a movie they they just can't or they'll do it really stupidly and ham-fistedly so maybe they'll just have to focus on the world building stuff which is was kind of cool now it's like i don't know it's kind of it's kind of a hot topic sort of thing now isn't it it's about that dated it looks like a it looks like there's got to be Hot Topic Bioshock t-shirts, right? I mean, who who out there is like a diehard Bioshock fan who would be, I don't know, upset about the movie not being good? I think they exist. I, I honestly think yeah. those people exist. I think all of the, every Bioshock fan, like earnest Bioshock fan I've ever known has like four children now and... Uh, you know, they one of have, them is named Little Sister. They don't have time to get like <laughs> upset about stuff. Yeah, every time a new child is born, they have to decide whether to save or harvest them. I'm the I'm the freak <laughs> Bioshock uh uh scrutinizer in every neighborhood uh who's sitting around not having children and uh, uh you know rewatching David Mamet movies three hundred times like. Maybe maybe uh, I, I'm a weirdo for thinking Bioshock blows. I mean, it does. I mean, I can probably prove it. No, I think people are coming around to that. Are they? I've been quiet during this segment because I've been racking my brain and my emails trying desperately to figure out the name of the person that I'm trying to talk about and failing, unfortunately. So there, there was a speaker at the DICE Summit 
um, maybe like 10 years ago, who was a film director, and he was at the time a pretty hot property. And um, he was interested in doing a Bioshock movie, and he was in talks for doing one. Guillermo del Toro? It was not Guillermo del Toro. I mean, it literally was, though. I mean, he was talking about doing a Bioshock movie. There, there's a lot of talks. There's a lot of talks in Hollywood with a lot of nope, people. No, that wasn't him. It, so I, I don't think this was ever announced, but he was like, he got together a group of people, including myself, at oh, DICE. Oh, you're talking about a guy you met. Yes, to ask us about what we thought would make a good Bioshock movie and whether we would consult on it. Brandon, and I was I, like, I'm sorry to break it to you, break it off uh, to you this way, but uh, that guy's making crypto now. So he, <laughs> I'm sure he is. Like, it, if a guy came up to you at a video game conference and asked for your input on a Bioshock movie uh, at any point in the past, he is an NFT crypto guy now. Yeah, I think so. It would be great if the Bioshock movie came out and the whole stance was maybe objectivism isn't so bad. But because I wanted to, you know, get the paycheck for the consulting. <laughs> oh, you did it? I wound up having to read part of one of those Ayn Rand books. And that was uh, that was not fun. That's Brand- Brandon <laughs> Sheffield out there uh, uh, taking the money nobody else wants by doing something nobody <laughs> should do. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it was. Uh, th- it was different times. I think. I don't think I would have gone down the same road. Might as well take uh, that money, I guess. Uh, at this at this point, but wait, man, then... this isn't how you you ended up on Google Stadia, is it? <laughs> no, it is not. It is not how. Um, hey, you know what? I'm, I might be on Google Stadia again. Possibly, <laughs> Go because, for it, uh, man. <laughs> once the. The the weird thing about Stadia, not to completely change it from <laughs> change topic, is they're the only platform out there, as long as they still exist, that um, offers the developer a cut of the subscription. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, uh, I have one friend who um, made like a lot of money through that, and so you know, and that um, man, and that friend's we- name is Ken Levine. Is Bioshock playable on Stadia? Hang on now. So, so Bioshock movie is on Netflix. Netflix has these interactive movie things, right? Um, yeah. So in the original game, since we're spoiling it, uh, there's this really, really cool mechanic where, um, the, and Jaffe alluded to this earlier, where there's a little girl in front of you and you can uh, not kill her uh, and continue on with your life and get uh, the ultimate reward at the end, or you can murder her. Uh, on screen and get like a lollipop uh, and it really makes you think about your actions you know like oh do i, do I want yeah. a lollipop right now i think that in this movie they're going to make you choose during the movie which path you're going to take and if you kill her oh yeah uh, it actually punishes you with 10 more minutes of movie oh god nice that's my prediction for this movie that's a way to do it uh, here's here's one thing that i predict in the like extras area where they have like episodes and more of Netflix, there will be audio logs that you can listen to that are just stage plays. If they were smart, they'd do it. I like that. All right. I mean, people talk all the time about how video game movies are no good, Jerry. Uh, they'll never be good. Nobody wants them, right? Well, there's some good ones, though, now. Well, people talk about this sort of thing all the time, right? They talk about they do. how there's never going to be good ones. There's a... Uh, and then uh, one of the things that is that is held up, people talk about how Peter Jackson was involved in a Halo movie. And how he wanted Neil Blomkamp to direct the Halo movie and how that didn't happen. They talk about these video game movies that would have been good if they had just uh, been made by the the studios too cowardly to make them or whatever. I feel like Guillermo del Toro's Bioshock movie is the one I see mentioned the most. 
Have you? Are we all hmm. aware of this? I'm aware of it, but I don't think I've seen that one mentioned more. I I feel like the Blomkamp Peter Jackson Halo was mentioned the most. God darn Guillermo del Toro's Bioshock edges it out, especially because when The Shape of Water, his a uh, very strange movie about a fish uh, man and a girl, uh, won won Best Picture. Uh, I remember seeing a really hilarious tweet that was like, uh, I bet so-and-so feels real stupid right now for not greenlighting that Bioshock movie. It's like, that was just like, there there were many, I mean, I happened to be working at a video game website at that time that The Shape of Water won. I I was uh, maybe in a position unhealthily prone to see such comments. I just remember that being the funniest ever invocation of uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Bioshock movie. Uh, because it was so weird, first of all, that that movie had won. Uh, the Oscars yeah. suck. So basically, Bioshock the movie is going to have to, it's going to have to try real hard if it wants to beat uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. And it's not going to. We'll be right back after a quick break. I'm going to get some water. Oh, some water, as in the shape of it? What, what, what shape's that water going to be, Brandon? Yeah. Might be an ice cube. That's a shape. That's one of my favorite. Genuinely one of my favorite shapes. It's a good one. I like a cube. I like an orb. Welcome back to Insert Credit. Uh, It's time for us to go to the dirt bag, where we select a question submitted by one of our listeners who subscribes to patreon.com slash insert credit. One of our many Jerry's. Yes, one of our many Jerry's. Don't call them listeners, call them Jerry's. Because that way, whenever I say Jerry, it's, uh, I'm I'm just uh, addressing every single member of the listener. It's like a baby kangaroo is a Joey. Yeah, a Joey. Our listeners are Jerry's. I think of my viewers as Jerry's. So our Jerry's, they subscribe to patreon.com slash insert credit where they get access to this form where they can submit their own questions and they also get regular bonus episodes and other fun surprises. Uh, This week's question comes from Bready to Die. Oh, wonderful. asks, when is auto-saving better than manually saving and vice versa? I manual save all the time. I don't care. I'm just kidding. I think autosaving's legit. Yeah, I think autosaving is pretty cool. And in in the grand majority of games, I would prefer if it would autosave for me all the time. The only time I don't like autosaving is when when there's like a and you can't go back from this point and do the rest of the side quests. Oh yeah. If you autosave me over there, then um, that's a no thanks. But I, I don't know. I think the, the kinds of games where autosaving are less relevant are things where you're trying to do a specific task and get better at it and you need to repeat things and so you should save from a specific point and and get better and get all the way through but most of the time i really think just just auto save me up i don't i don't need to have a complicated time with this just let me go i mean i use the manual saves only if i'm not sure about a decision that i'm about to make what else are you going to use those for I use them when I'm going to stop playing for the night to be just extra sure that oh. I don't lose my progress. Yeah, I do that too. That's true. Yeah, that's the main one. And every for me time it's like, are you sure? It's been 3.5 seconds since your last save that you, if you want to quit. Yeah. Yeah. Man, th- those those Yakuza games, talking about them again, um, I don't know why you have to go through like 5 million save screens. Um, I mean, I do know why, but they, they could streamline it a little bit. You got to save. Choose whether you want to overwrite your save, yes, no. Then it does a big save thing, and then it's like, okay, now we're going to save your system data. Okay, now we're doing that. Now we're going to save this other data. It's like just, just put it all in one thing, please. They just want to, they just want to make sure that you know who's in charge. Know where all the data is going. Yeah. So you don't have any questions. 
I appreciate that to an extent, but they could just have like a screen one of three or something and just go through it. I think uh, so. I, I I talked a lot about the auto saves and the manual saves in my review of Cyberpunk 2077 and how I had over a hundred manual save files. Uh, how the game is all about decisions and there's all these decision points in the game where you get to choose such and such thing over such and such other thing. And uh, I feel like sometimes they're a little gutless where they just they they give you a, a choice. You got all these manual saves and it's like uh, after the point of no return in Cyberpunk, they, they drop an autosave on you, right? And they're like, oh, you're saved here. Can't save during this mission. But it's like, oh, I mean, I got a million manual saves and I can roll back any like decision in the game over the course of the last act. They put all of this emphasis on choices and such. I think my favorite example of a game that auto-saves and also has manual saves harmoniously is Final Fantasy XIV, where the mm. game is, it's an MMO, so it is auto-saving all the time, right? So, you know, you can't, you, there's no cheating with your save data or your decisions that you make or whatnot. But at the same time, when you log out of the game, you, you can do so in a, in a hotel room, which uh, gives you a bonus the next time you log on because your character has a, has rested or gone to sleep, which is something I was doing all the time in Red Dead Redemption and Cyberpunk. I was making my character go to bed before I turned oh, it yeah, off. Oh, yeah, I do that all the right? time. Which I think is fun, which is like a double manual saving, basically. I mean, the game is auto-saving, but I'm also manual saving and also putting my character in a bed before turning the, the game off. So it's uh, anything that makes it more fun uh, for me. Anyway, Final Fantasy XIV lets me put my character in a bed and turn the game off, which is not a manual save, but it gives me a bonus. So it sort of is. So I think in other words, the answer to this question is uh, auto saves and manual saves are best in when they're in harmony. Timmy reminded me of how I kind of like some of the older games like uh, shining force where they ask if you want to save. And then after that, they ask if you want to keep playing. Yeah. If you say no, then they're, they're like, oh, well, good night. That's, or have a nice day or whatever. That is a, a Dragon Quest uh, holdover, I believe. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. uh, those Shining Force individuals were, uh, they were big, big Dragon Quest buffs. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, even down to like you save at a church in Dragon Quest. And uh, that's always very fun. It's very pleasant in a Dragon Quest. Yeah. I like in Shining Force, the book framework where it's, the whole thing is being read to you by a little elf child. Strange little elf child, yes. Strange little elf child is reading the book to you, and they're like, oh, which which uh, chapter do you want to continue from? Love that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Just give me all that, Jerry. How do you balance making the player more powerful as a game progresses while increasing the game's difficulty? Yeah, well, that's, that's one a of tough the, one. one of the bigger challenges in, uh, in, uh, <laughs> in a- in, uh, in video games. That's in, pretty much the whole thing. Yeah. How do you make a good video game? It's a good question. Skateboards. I, my, my, my feeling <laughs> is that you've got to have a little push and pull. It, I mean, it depends on the type of game, but for a lot of them. So like you start in a zone and you're a little less powerful than the enemies that are there and you got to work for it. And then by the end of the zone, you get more powerful than them. And if you ever return to that zone, you're way more powerful than them. And so mm -hmm. you can feel your progression. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's like kind of a, a basic template that, um, can be followed so you kind of get more powerful in the middle of a thing so that at the end of it you're like yeah i'm done here so you get you get to feel more powerful and then less again and then th there's always a greater challenge and that kind of 
stuff. Uh, that only works for certain kinds of things, I guess. I would say the answer is, as Frank uh, suggested, skateboards. Because yeah. in the game Jack 2, for example, one of the best video games, in okay. my opinion, that's ever been out there, you, you get a skateboard, you get a hoverboard later uh, at, a, at a point about maybe 18, 19% of the way through the game. You can then use the skateboard to traverse the open, open world in the game quite triumphantly with, with, with wonderful, refreshing speed. Yet, there are then platforming segments in the levels that require you to be using this hoverboard to be doing uh, quite daring, uh, horribly frustrating tricks. I think that's an interesting way to uh, make the player more powerful, but also make the game more difficult. That, that's definitely that's what I meant. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I was pretty sure that's where you were. Uh, Specifically talking about Jack, too. So much of the the making characters more powerful and then making enemies more powerful thing, it just it ultimately winds up being like, everyone's at the same level all the time and it's pointless it's escalation man i i've definitely thought about like what if there was a game that just made the visual numbers go up but didn't actually change anything like it's it's like now you're level two and the enemies are level four now but it it, it didn't actually change i remember there was this one final fantasy i can't remember which one it was though Eight? it was a spin-off oh. where they were like all the enemies will dynamically raise their level along with you and it's like okay so everybody's the same level as me all the time why even bother having leveling uh there's this article that went around about um a uh it was a game by i think psygnosis and it was a racing game and i can't remember what it was called but it wasn't it wasn't very well received oh no it was by bullfrog same thing they had to make it in like three weeks for the playstation this ridiculously impossible task and so they initially intended to have all the all the craft ha uh, that you could play it was like a kind of a hovercrafty thing have different stats and they visually kept that you could have that you had different stats and they were all different but under the hood they were all the exact same car and had the same power same drifting same whatever but just having those visual differences there saying that this had more acceleration, this had more whatever, uh, people still had preferences for which car they felt like was the best, even though they were actually truly identical. And uh, I think about that one a lot. It's like the M&M flavors conversation. Yeah, it's all smoke and mirrors, god darn. It's just a, it's just, it's just a different colored M&M. Exactly. So one, my, my favorite answer to this question is I was just, uh, I've been uh, sort of playing the game The Last of Us again, by which I mean I've been watching Mimsy play it, and uh, I, The Last of Us actually kind of gets easier as it goes on, and the player gets more uh, more powerful. And uh, by the fact that your uh, your assistant, your your secondary character, becomes useful during the game, she like at at a certain point uh, in the early middle of the game will start killing other like enemies. Like if a guy grabs you, she will come up behind him and stab him. Like once every two minutes or so, you get like a, a free. Uh, stealth uh save which is fun that's the game sort of uh plateauing its difficulty this is the inverse of the answer to the question it's a game like plateauing the difficulty while while also making the player more more powerful and making that actually narratively and structurally and mechanically meaningful and that's beautiful that they didn't even try to make the game get like harder just made it part of the story of course some critics said that the combat was samey and the difficulty plateaued uh, which was such a weird criticism because it was clearly on purpose. The end. Thank you. 
Perfect. The game I was thinking of was High Octane. I, I think it's so weird when people are like, yeah, it's too bad that this game isn't really hard. And I don't, I just don't understand that mentality. Yeah. Like, what are you, tr- who are you trying to gatekeep yourself? <laughs> I mean, like, do you, you, yeah. you need this to be m- more of a frictionful experience for you? I, I don't know. It's kind of strange. Anyway, can we all agree that the uh, skateboard in Hudson's Adventure Island is, is terrible? Oh, skateboarding and yeah, it's not it's not that good. It's not a good skateboard. It's good that yeah, you can slow down that. in it, but that's bad. I'm pretty good at that skateboard, TBH. We're revisiting a segment right now. I want all of you to review Super Mario Brothers 2 in 6 minutes. Which one? Oh my god. The American one. American one. Okay. The American uh, one. I believe we call that Super Mario USA in these parts. It's called Mario Madness. I call it Super Mario Brothers 2 because it's the only one that I played and I like it. I think uh, Super Mario Brothers 2 is the favorite Super Mario Brothers game of people who are performatively like anti-Nintendo. <laughs> Mm. I, I knew this was going to be a, a, a thing about me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it it is though. It is like you'll see people be like, "I don't care for Nintendo, but I love Kirby." Right? Uh, yeah. Where it's like they just want to they want to launch into taking a dump on Nintendo. I'm all for taking a dump on anybody, especially a company that that murders their own legacy. So Super Mario Brothers two, I like Doki Doki Panic. Yeah, the Doki Doki Panic. I like how much um, kind of weirdness. There is in there, like the hidden doors. It gave me the feeling as a player that there was kind of a lot of potential and there could be things anywhere. Mm -hmm. Which is the spirit of Super Mario Brothers, I think. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, to be honest, I think the the, in the first Super Mario Brothers, that spirit is uh, somewhat of a mean spirit, like uh, invisible blocks that you have to jump and touch with your uh, the, Hmm. the peak of your jump in order to reveal them. Super Mario Brothers 2 uh, Mario Madness, Super Mario USA Doki Doki Panic, it's it's complete title, by the way, is uh, a game where they actually kind of uh, keep a lot of the weird promises of the original Super Mario Brothers, where it, uh, it, it executes on these little tiny ideas, right? And it feels a little more exploratory than punitive, the, the, the weird little secrets that you find there's something special for you rather than here's a here's a secret way to get punished. You know, all, all three of the, the, the main lines, the Mario's on the NES, like explore out of bounds places in different ways. So like the first one is there's stuff below and above the screen. The second mm-hmm. one is like there's a mirror world and there's more stuff back there. And then the third yeah. one is like you can go behind stuff, you know, and, and I, I think there's a really interesting through line there. Something that I find kind of remarkable about Mario 2 from a, a, a tech perspective, if you kind of understand like the, the ROM size limitations and, 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 and stuff like that, is that it does a remarkable job of convincing you that you're going to a bunch of different places using just a small handful of tiles and like oh, palette yeah. tricks. It's really interesting. It is. And I one thing that charmed me about it was the the differences between characters and their movement, because the differences are quite subtle it's like luigi runs faster luigi does not run faster he doesn't oh he jumps higher yeah he jumps higher and he, he jumps higher and slower you know, one interesting thing about the different characters in super mario brothers 2 is uh anytime there's a discussion of the game people bring up the different characters but with this weird contentious air like like oh there's i love the characters in mario 2 peach is the best obviously people get all like new york versus chicago pizza uh, about uh defending their favorite Mario 2 character 
And it's like, clearly it's Toad, like, duh. Like, <laughs> duh, Toad is the best. You can pick up turnips faster. Yeah, you can pick everything up faster, and that's how you get all the extra lives that you're going to need if you're playing exclusively as Toad, is because you can pick up all the coins and then win the slot machine at the end of the, the round. But couldn't you say that the game is balanced for Mario? Uh, yeah, Mario's right in the middle, yeah. It's Mario in the middle is the one of the alternate names so of it. So wouldn't the platonic Super Mario Brothers 2 experience be a Mario playthrough? Um, Probably. I mean, I, I, I played as Mario. So the cool thing, like, I remember my, my neighbor in Wichita, Kansas... Getting Mario Mario 2, which he referred to as Mario Madness, like, constantly, because it said Mario Madness on the box. We got Mario Madness. You want to play Mario Madness? You want to play Mario Madness? Like, I remember him, uh, Y'all got that like, madness? like, trying to figure out what strategy, like, which character was correct for which levels, and, like, being very strategic and detective style about it. And uh, I, I, I remember the schoolyard conversation at the time, around the time I got yelled at by a kid for not having Keith Courage. Uh, it's fun to me that that would be something to yell about. You don't have Keith Courage. Yeah, that seems like a parallel shadow world after you throw the uh, <laughs> potion kind of place to yes. be. Yeah. This kid was, uh, his name was Jared. Uh, he was in sixth grade. and Oh, no. And it's not the Jared. He was in sixth grade okay. and uh, <laughs> he had a turbo graphics and he was just really angry about it. And uh, he, he was, he was a, a bully, uh, plain and simple. <laughs> Though I just remember kids in the schoolyard... Uh, strategizing about the four characters. This was before, uh, so an iconic Mario 2 playthrough is Mario, sure, but uh, Mario wasn't that iconic back then. Uh, Mario was just, he was a guy from one video game. A lot of kids encountered Super Mario Brothers 2 around the same time that they encountered Super Mario Brothers 1. Kind of an interesting way to think about mm -hmm. it. I thought about that recently too. That's a, I, th I think a lot of the youngsters don't understand that. It's like, like one was a contemporary game for like right like eight years or something. Yeah, but the graphics difference between Mario One and Mario Two is like, uh, I mean, it's it's like it's like NES and Sega Master System basically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Mario Two is the most Sega Master System Mario game. Uh, it's the out best there. looking Mario on the system, and I think it's because there is a dedicated eyeball sprite. That yeah. has its own color palette, and it just makes such a huge difference. The game had a real expressive look. Uh, it kind of uh, it doubled down on having like a personality and an aesthetic. So it's like Shigeru Miyamoto was not married to Mario yet at that point, right? right? So uh, how cruel, in fact, uh, the those those business powers of Nintendo to uh, tell the man yeah you gotta just uh we're gonna put mario on him for america who cares i bet it actually started as a mario game it might have huh because i mean he he said multiple times that that's his process that like mario is his stand-in character yeah um so i'll bet it started that way and then they did the tie-in with uh do either of you know it's it's actually it's a festival doki doki panic is p based on like an annual festival or something where people wear those masks like the shy guys and yeah. this was like the oh really this was, like the official game of that year's festival i just don't you don't know the name or anything like that. Doki Doki Panic is a real. Uh, it's it. It sounds unique to us though, uh, as uh, as English speakers. Though, if you spend a little time learning the Japanese language, it's like that's kind of a really boring title for a game. What's well, Doki Doki? Just a uh, heartbeat. Yeah, it's just like heartbeat sound. Yeah, it just means it's the sound of a heartbeat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of a nothing title for a game. What's the difference between Doki Doki and Toki Meki? Uh, well, one of them is a word, and the other one is an onomatopoeia. Fair enough. So, is it, would a translation just be like anxiety? 
for Doki Doki Panic. Yeah, basically yes. it's like Panic Panic. It's called Panic Attack. Doki Doki is like the sound of a heart beating. Right. So actually Mario Madness is a pretty good translation. Yeah, except there was except for the well, but for the lack of Mario in the in the original right. uh yeah, it's pretty good. It's just madness. Pa- madness uh, panic, panic madness. So I would <laughs> I would uh, ultimately for the the purposes of this this podcast conclude that uh, the the bottom line here is that Super Mario Brothers 2 Doki Doki Panic Mario Madness Super Mario USA is the Bonk's revenge of Nintendo. Wow. <laughs> I like it. Uh, it is it yes. is it is the most the most bonkish PC Engine slash Sega Master System Sega Genesis feeling video game that Nintendo ever made. They just so happened yeah, to make it's it the most Hudson-y Nintendo game, I guess I'd say. Yeah, back before uh Nintendo had really codified all of their all of their their design language back before they they started just putting Kirby. It would have been a Kirby game if they'd had Kirby at that point. Probably. That was Nintendo's weirdest time. That was the disc system era, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like Doki Doki Panic and then those like detective adventure games and stuff like that. Like that, oh, that's yeah. a strange time for Nintendo. And then Zelda they, two Famicom murder club. Yeah. And the, there's the, the time travel one. You know, those are on the switch now. I do know that, but the time travel one isn't. And, and there's the sort of like Edo period, Japan adventure game too. Mm-hmm. That, I think that was Sakamoto even. So like it's a, it's an odd time for Nintendo that is not, well, like almost none of it's translated except for the uh, murder club. Um, and, and then when they went back to cartridges, it was just kind of like, okay, Mario 3, make it like one, but the but better. So, Mario 3 rules, dude. And I just want to throw in, I, I'm not going to do the Mario voice, but uh, when I was listening to Tim say Mario Madness a few times, I so, something that popped into my head was uh, Mario in, in the Charles Martinet voice screaming one step beyond. And uh, I'll just let you play that <laughs> in your head. It's pretty, hmm. Mario Madness. Pretty good. All right. Uh, we have time for one more question. Uh, write the first sentence and the last sentence of a textbook about video games. Shoot. We've come a long way since Pong. Mm. <laughs> That's the first sentence. And then the last sentence is, we've come a long way since Pac-Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think for me, it's something like, okay, so what exactly is a video game? And then the last sentence is, we'll probably never know what a video game is. <laughs> I feel <laughs> that's pretty good. I feel like a, a good opening sentence would be. I mean, it's boring, but something like everybody plays games. So you just start out with that expectation of universality. Okay. I think the 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 last sentence should just be crypto dot com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a reference to all the Super Bowl ads that had crypto in them. Yeah, the Larry David one, for example. Did you all see that? Larry one? David did one. Oh, it's very uh, disappointing. That was such yeah. a good commercial, and then it's like, oh, they got Larry on crypto. It was a really good commercial. Yeah, that's the worst part. Of yeah, it. it was one of the best. <laughs> like you can understand why he one did of the it. best commercials I've ever seen. You want to know what's real nice about rich yeah. people? Just like the actual nicest thing about rich people is how they're always uh, just offering to get you in on it and make you rich with them. That's my joke about crypto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're homies and they just really want you to be rich oh, yeah. too. <laughs> they do everything they can. That's totally normal rich people behave. That's how you know crypto's real, dude. That's how you know. I do think any discussion. You said video game history, right? That's the book? Uh, no, I said a video game textbook. Oh, just a textbook. Okay. I think either way, like it's interesting to just start with what is a video game exact. Right. Uh, as far as the ending. 
I don't know. I think I'm just sticking to my guns. I think I think I'm onto something there. Can I actually write the first paragraph? Go for it. So here it is. Imagine a button. What happens when you press it? Welcome to video game design. And then the last <laughs> sentence is crypto.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, I think on that we have to end the show. Uh, Does anybody have have any recommendations? Because we talked so long last time, uh, I didn't bother. None of us did a recommendation last time, I think. Um, No. Right. uh, So what I wanted to recommend was uh, Resident Evil 4 HD, uh, which is a a fan uh, patch that is uh, remarkable. It replaces... I believe literally every texture. I think it's every texture, yeah. Yeah, I think it's actually every texture is replaced, not by like a reimagining, not by like making it more photorealistic. These these two guys spent eight years and uh, they logged their hours. I believe it was a little over 10,000 hours mm-hmm. painstakingly recreating every texture to look as if it was the original before they crunched it down to fit on uh, to fit in the GameCube's video memory, essentially. So sometimes that is redrawing very carefully. I think that's most of it. But sometimes it meant getting on a plane and like going to the church where the artists photographed bricks and finding the exact bricks and re-photographing them. Yeah, it's horrifying. Wow. Yeah. How, how did these people have the resources for this? One one of the guys was in Spain, right? Oh, uh, that would do it. But I thought that maybe they both were, but I didn't look into it. Yeah, I think at least one of them, I think, is in Spain. Yeah. I think one of them's a U.S. boy and the other's a Spain boy. Uh, one of the guys works for a bank. I don't know. It's it's kind of a great... I believe one of the guys, uh, the project began when one of the guys was looking at a wall in his Spanish hometown and thought it looked familiar, and then he photographed it. And uh, realized it was in Resident Evil 4. And then he realized his town had two walls from Resident Evil 4. And then he decided to find the rest, the other 10,000. That's a joke. I don't know if that's true. But uh, I think... (laughs) That would be cool if it were. I was compelled. I don't know. I'd like it. I'm writing the Netflix uh, movie adaptation of Resident Evil HD, The Story. The result is that it looks exactly like you remember Resident Evil 4. You know, you kind of play it and you're like, what's the big deal? But if you go like look at the original tiles again, you're like, oh. Or if you just <laughs> launch the uh, the Steam executable. Uh, for right, without the, patching the, it. Yeah. For like the, the five minutes or what the one minute you need to launch it before like to make sure you have the right version number. Uh, you can switch back to the original tiles in the options Oh, yeah, you can't well. just toggle, toggle them off. Well, yeah. you have to restart the whole game to do it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you can't just like, you know, hit select to go back and forth, which would be really cool. Um, but they did that. They fixed some of the bugs. Uh, as well and and reintroduce some of the things that were accidentally removed or misplaced uh, after porting it from the original GameCube version. So it is the master version of Resident Evil 4 and it's fantastic and uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. 60 FPS cap though, which is not their fault. Yeah, it's uh, there were like some sort of a frame rate uh, dependent things in yeah. there, right? Yeah. It's still uh, 60 FPS, I'll take it. Yep. You know, why not? Uh, it's my turn. Yes. I'm going to recommend a show on the Netflix Uh-oh. of all places. I know. Oh, Home of Bioshock. Or Home of Bioshock, the movie. Yeah. It's called Bioshock. Um, It's called Green Frontier. GFT. Uh, this is a show that I haven't seen anybody talk about for some reason. I don't really know what's up with that. It is a, it's like a hard-boiled detective thing, but with magical realism and starring a lady and set in the Amazon and, uh, 
it's a movie where it's not a movie. It's a show where just about everything is done a little differently from how you might expect. Slower paced. It's less physically violent. The sources of people's strengths are a little different. Uh, you you got to keep the magical realism thing in mind when you go into it, because otherwise it, it could be, feel a little weird. But it's if this had been season two of True Detective, for example, everyone would have been would have been like, "Well, this is the greatest series of all time." The ending. I'm just gonna. This is not exactly a spoiler, Uh-oh. but it's one of those things where they. Uh, I feel like the writing and direction and cinematography was so well done and so well put together that they could have put together like a conclusive ending um but they did one of those open enders oh so they can uh have a second season or what it's it's i don't feel like it was even for a second season i feel like they made a choice that just didn't 100 percent work there and i feel like i gotta say that in advance because i i think some folks once they get there could be a little disappointed otherwise but uh it's a really good show it's in spanish and then various indigenous languages to the amazon region um, and it's just really, it's really neat. I haven't seen another show quite like it. All the IMDb reviews are complaining about how it's slow or how the big twist they didn't like. I don't know what the big twist was because I didn't see one. I thought it was uh, going right along in one direction and kept going there. And to you, it wasn't slow because you don't watch all the Marvel movies on repeat. That's right. Not to keep But it, you on. know, just, just gorgeous cinematography. And and very well framed and paced for my money. And uh, I, I think it's really cool and you should check it out. It's called Green Frontier. The end. Is it uh, available on Fandango? I don't know if it's on Fandango anymore. I, I've, <sighs> me and Fandango have had a falling out. Oh, no more Fandango. Brandon hates Fandango. Oh, the sponsorship fell through. Yeah, that's what happened. Darn. Um, my recommendation for this week is quite simple. Buy Bitcoin, crypto.com. That's a joke. <laughs> don't do that, please. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> don't uh, and also i would i would recommend people stop asking me to help them with crypto stop asking me about nfts uh, yeah. stop asking what i think a, a gentleman i'm gonna go ahead and, and pejoratively refer to him as a young man uh emailed me just yesterday saying that my uh my silence on the topic of nfts is pr- perhaps read by some of my audience as tacit endorsement uh uh, my, my failure to renounce. He said renounce and denounce. He mixed his nounces. You can't denounce. You can't renounce something you didn't announce, right? He told me it's read yeah. as tacit endorsement yeah. on the part of not just me, but some other of your fans. Uh, like, I think basically everybody's got to just get off of the, the internet, just period. I only look at my emails so that brands can apologize to me. Get off the internet. Uh, <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't buy crypto. That's my recommendation for the week. Uh, Thank you. All right. There was a comic book that came out in 2019 called Dog Days of Summer. There's a pretty good Crypto the Super Dog story in there. So that's my crypto recommendation. Is it about DDoS attacks because of this having the same acronym? (laughs) It must be. Uh, My other recommendations are that if you're listening to the show on any platform where you can subscribe to a review podcast, that you do that to keep the algorithms pushing us to the forefront you could also go to patreon.com slash insert credit where you could become a patron to submit your own topics listen to monthly bonus episodes and get other exclusive treats you could also join us on forums.insertcredit.com 
where oh. a uh, pretty obtuse game is going on right now that I don't know the rules. I haven't figured it out yet myself. <laughs> <laughs> and follow us on Twitter for our own personal updates and projects. The show is at Insert Credit. I'm at Alex Jaffe. Brandon is at Necrosofty. Frank is at Frank Safaldi. And Tim is at 108. This show is edited by Esper Quinn <laughs> with music by Kurt Feldman. I'm Alex Jaffe. I'm Frank Safaldi. I'm Tim Rogers. I'm Brandon Sheffield. And you have now saved your game. I got good news. So that that the tweet that I did after 4900 retweets, mm-hmm. we finally got a $1 patron. Oh hell yeah. Nice. Yeah, wild. Working our way up, boys.